again, talking about your word, talking about communion. We are those who are once defined as sinners and now just defined by your grace, your Holy Spirit. Um, and Father, I thank you for the sacrament of communion and how it helps us to remember who we are in Christ and to remember the gospel. And I pray that you would help your people this morning, that we would all benefit from the truth of your word, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this is just me kind of uh, summarizing slash uh, um, always trying to refine how I think about communion. One of the ways that we, uh, historically and in our confession, we always talk about communion being a sign and a seal. And, uh, and I have written here that as a sign, you are acting out realities. And I've been uh, just personally studying Ezekiel this week. And uh, if you, you don't have to really know anything about Ezekiel to get this, but Ezekiel is living in Babylon. He's been taken into exile. He's a thousand miles from Jerusalem. And God gives Ezekiel a vision of what is going to happen in Jerusalem. That Jerusalem's going to fall, they're going to get crushed, that the 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 king, the prince, is going to be taken off into captivity. The walls are going to come down. You know, all these kind of things. He's, he's giving Ezekiel, a thousand miles away, a vision of what's going to happen. The reality is what's going to happen. But then he wants Ezekiel to act out in Babylon what is going to happen in Jerusalem. So he, so he like, you know, breaks through the wall. He... he uh, gathers his stuff at night and he and he like runs out like he does all these things and that's a sign of the realities and he's trying to do it to impress the realities on the people that he's talking to and i think that is a good way that we think of us of the sign of communion you're acting out the realities so when when we, we don't we don't do this because our bread is already cut up for us but when you break the bread, you're acting out the reality of Christ's body being broken. When you, when you pour the, uh, the juice or the wine, you're acting out the shedding of Christ's blood. So those are, you're acting out realities. That's what it means that it's a sign. And then, if you understand the sign correctly, then you're, you understand the, how it is a seal to you. And... And what I write here is impressing the reality to you. So just as Ezekiel was acting out that reality so that the people that he was ministering to could, could oh, this is exactly what's going to happen, and they could, in a sense, the, the certainty of that reality is being impressed to them, that's what communion does to you. So, so uh, you are to, as you're chewing the, the, the bread and thinking about the bread uh, and it's, it, you know, you can taste it, you can feel it, um, and that bread is coming down into you, you're physically to nourish you, so as you feed upon Christ's death, that's nourishing you as well. So it's, it's, it seals the truth of Christ's death being a nourishing 
aspect to your soul, it seals that to your heart and mind and actually is a means of grace. It is actually evoking faith in you. It's not something like the Catholics believe that if you just did it, then it would, um, you know, you just did the outward act that it would somehow make true the reality. It, that's not the way it seals it to you. It's impressing that reality to you. Does that make sense to you guys a little bit, that what's going on there? So a lot of times we get confused when we hear sign and seal. You know, you just kind of think it's magical or something, and that's not what happens. It's, it's God giving you an acted-out sign such that you can believe the realities that are happening. Now, if you understand this, then you understand that to ignore the realities... Is not good. It's bad. <laughs> Very bad. So, so this is where, um, this is where. Still not erasing very well. <clears throat> this is where um, the curses, the bad aspects of communion, can come upon you. And so that's where we are today. We're in. Uh, uh, I guess we'll pick up um, in verse 27. Yeah, 27 to 34. And Marcus, you got a microphone back there to hand to one of these young men. Trevor or Eason, pick that up. Yes, that's what I would like. Yeah. Yes, the business of being a seal, yes. Bring that mic down to her so she can ask it on the... <laughs> well, keeps me from having to repeat it. Uh, when we are saved, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal, which I thought meant it indicates that we belong to Christ. And I wondered if in communion uh, that is repeated because the... The pr our presence at the communion table is another sign that we are in Christ's family, we belong to him. Is that not so? Yes, yes. The only thing I would tell you is that um, when we usually talk about the Holy Spirit, we, we usually talk about the Holy Spirit as the reality. So, so like um, in communion, Christ lives in you. That's the reality. How does he live in you? By the Holy Spirit. Right? So the Holy Spirit is the reality. The reason why 1 Corinthians talks about the Holy Spirit as a seal, it, it's using it in terms of a, in this situation, like a guarantee, it's like a down, it's like a, it's like a uh, deposit that you put on your, on your uh, house that you're buying or something like that. What does a deposit do? It holds it, right? So how is the Holy Spirit a deposit of something else? That's right. So, so the Holy Spirit is a seal in the sense that the fullness 
of your salvation has not yet been given to you. I would even say that you have not even experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit yet. So in, in the 1 Corinthians passage, or 2 Corinthians, where he's talking about the Holy Spirit being a, a seal, he's really talking about the fullness of salvation. Um, so there's using seal in a little bit different way, um, whereas um, in communion, the reality of the Holy Spirit is being sealed to your mind. It's, it's, in, it's, uh, uh, it's like it's... Uh, visually uh, impressed upon you the truth of the reality of Christ living in you. It, the Communion does actually function this way a little bit as well because Jesus talks about that I will not eat this meal again with you until we eat it in glory. So he too is talking about the fullness of salvation and you are partaking of the communion meal as an uh, anticipation of that. Um, so it does do that same kind of thing. But I, I just think we can get confused when we talk about the Holy Spirit as a seal when in fact the Holy Spirit is the reality as well. It's kind of both of those. So um, I don't know if that touches on what you're asking or not. You can fo ask a follow-up. So. <clears throat> and, and the thing that I think people get confused when they think about communion. They, 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 they associate, they mix these two. So if I take communion, it's, it's like this guarantee of something else. And that's it's a little bit, it's just being used differently in the way that Paul is talking about it. And at least the way we're talking about it when we say that it is a sign and a seal. Um, so. Okay. Uh, 27 to 34. I know Mary Dunn wants to read, so why don't you give her the mic? Oh, here, I'll take it to her. We've got a new, a new, new strategy on this. So you just keep the mic until we pass it on to somebody else. There you go. Twenty-seven to thirty-four to the end of the chapter. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some truly we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Okay. Um, this is probably a passage you should all be familiar with. Um, what are some questions that come to your mind as you read this passage just to help me address those to you okay so unworthy that's a question good
So what's the, maybe the difference between judging ourselves and by the Lord? Would that be a summary of what you're asking? Okay. Recognizing the body. Okay. That's it. You guys are definitely not kids. The kids always, when I read this, are like, what? I can eat this and I can get sick or die? Nobody even asked that question? <laughs> I mean, that's a big issue, isn't it? <laughs> so, like, what is this business about sickness and dying? Hopefully you do have that question. I have to talk about that if you don't have it. Um, a part of the judgment, so, yeah. Uh, and, and, okay, so, it's, it is a judgment, um, but we're going to have to ask the question, is it a final judgment? Because the text definitely says so that they would not be condemned with the world. So that's that's. Yeah, judge can just be a uh, it has a breadth of meaning, and I think Paul actually uses it in multiple ways in this passage. So, Anne. Huh? Okay, so um, uh, and not to, so you're actually giving an answer to what this is, uh, and that's good, but I'm still on the questions. <laughs> good answer, but um, are there any other questions? Okay. Um, all right, so let's, let's talk about the unworthiness first. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning, that means like taking it through the mud, like stepping on it and trashing it, the body and blood of the Lord. That makes sense? Huh? What does your say? Guilty concerning. Okay. Um, any other translations on that? Sinning against, yeah.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. The Greek is, um, will be guilty. He will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So, and that, and even the the uh, ESV is is uh, um, in a sense placing profaning in there for you, which helps try to translate it. Obviously, the uh, yours is probably um, newer than mine because the ESV makes changes as well, different editions of the ESV. Um, yeah, I, I'm just going from the um, uh, from the ESV that was in my uh, in my um, Bible Works program, which is probably one of the first editions of it. So they've since taken that out. So. <clears throat> No, it says, uh, we'll be guilty of profaning, so, uh, so, uh, it, I, I don't think that this is the place where we ought to get ha- caught up on, because you, we are, whether it's just concerning, guilty of concerning, or guilty of profaning, that, that is what's happening, you're actually taking this body and blood of the Lord, and in a sense, trampling on it, I mean, that's what you're doing, uh, and that's what your guilt is when you do this. Which, by the way, um, is, is right off the top an indication that what you're doing um, has more than just uh, remembrance value. Um, there's no place in Scripture that says, for instance, um, you know, if you come to church and and don't really listen to the sermon, you're guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. doesn't say things like that, right? But the sacrament of communion actually says that if you actually enact this, you're actually partaking in this way, it, you're, you're, you're not just feeding on the blood, body and blood of Christ, you're actually guilty of it. Like you're, you're uh, the exact opposite is happening. So instead of the reality that the sign is supposed to point you to, you're getting the opposite of the reality. You're actually trashing it. So that's, that's the importance of that. But what does it mean in an unworthy manner? Well, in the text, it tells you a couple things that you need to do. And it tells you that you need to examine yourself. And it tells you that you need to judge yourself. Is that right? Are those the two things that you're supposed to do in the text? Examine yourself and judge yourself. Um, It doesn't say examine yourself about what, does it? You just know that in some way you're supposed to examine what's going on inside of you. Now I am going to... uh, Based on the whole context of chapter 11, I'm going to give you three ways in which you're supposed to examine yourself. The first way you're supposed to examine yourself is in your relationship with God. 
The second way you're supposed to examine yourself is in your relationship with sin. And the third way you're supposed to examine yourself is in your relationship with believers. Those are the three ways I think you're supposed to examine yourself. Now, when it comes to your relationship with God, I think that you're supposed to examine yourself. This is directly connected with discerning the body, which is recognizing the body. And Hope's not here today, but this is the primary way that she takes communion, and it's good. You know, she was kind of a, kind of a, like, whoa, I'm supposed to discern myself in relationship to other believers, meaning the body, meaning other believers. That's a little bit new, but the, the heart of this, discerning the body in your relationship with God. Can you discern the body? Remember, communion is a sign of a reality. So if you're not able to actually search your heart and say, am I trusting in Jesus Christ by faith? And and. Because of that faith, he is now united with me and living within me. If you can't discern that, then you shouldn't be taking communion. Okay? That's like a basic, simple way. Do you have faith in Christ and from that union with Christ? Um, when I'm talking with kids, I usually say, are you even able to understand the symbols? Can you, can you understand that bread actually is pointing you to the broken body of Christ? Can you understand that the wine is crushed, that it's trampled out so that you can um, uh, have the judgment of God poured out on Christ, and then from that blood you can be free from that judgment of God and have joy? I'm like, can, you, can you actually think about that? Um, can you, are you even at a place where you can contemplate that Christ is not just out there, but he's living inside of me. And he's feeding me. And I think uh, to a young person, there's a certain maturity of age that you have to be at before you can understand those things. But even as an older person, you could go through the motions and never ask yourself the question, Am I still believing these realities? Right? Faith is not something that just happens once and then that's it. It's, am I continuing to trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation? So when you have to examine yourself, I think part of it is examining, am I continuing to believe? Do I still believe this stuff? And that's a part of what you need to do with communion. Okay. Okay. I'll I'll try to talk about Pado. Oh, Pado Baptist or Pado Communion. I was gonna say Pado Communion. Let's let's talk about Pado Communion uh, at the end of this. Uh, you've got to force me to get. That's a very good question. Um, go ahead. Are you gonna answer her question? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. So, so um, in examining yourself in relationship with God, I would say there's always a tension because we live with, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? No one's faith is so perfect that there's no elements of unbelief still there. So, but you're still supposed to examine yourself and ask, am I someone who has rejected Christ or am I still trying to run to Christ and cling to him? Because if you, if you don't examine yourself to think about whether you really truly are believing in Christ, you're missing the point of what this is about. And I would, just in brief, I would say that this is something that's even beyond just pedo communion it's, it's why we take it so seriously before we let a child start taking communion. So in other words, I think my children both were believing when they were like six, but we didn't really even bring them for communion until they were like 12. So there's a sense where this is even a higher standard than if you just believe. It's, you have to be, have the quality of being able to examine your own heart. That is a hard thing to do. To discern whether there's actual faith inside of you. Okay? So, in relationship, this was with God. It's very connected to relationship with sin. But you're also examining your heart in relationship to your sin. And this is where I think it's easiest to look at, judge yourself. Um, When you judge yourself, you're actually making a declaration that the sins that you've committed are really sin and worthy of God's judgment. So you have to look at your life and look at the sins that you have committed and instead of excusing your sin, admitting that it's sin. That's what it means to judge yourself. Can't mean at this place absolute condemnation of yourself I mean, you are, in a sense, saying it's worthy of condemnation, so you are saying that. Um, but because you're trusting in Christ, your relationship with God, it can't be, oh, I, I, I'm going to hell every time you take communion. It's just that you're judging, you're look, taking a serious look at your heart, trying to discern, are there areas in my life where I'm continuing to struggle with sin? And so he says, we judge ourselves. And this actually should help you understand that if you're perfect and you are not dealing with any sin right now, you really don't need communion. Communion is for those who are sinners. But it is for those who look at their sin, they grieve over their sin, they hate their sin, they want freedom from their sin, all those kind of things. You're judging yourself. That's what what you're trying to do. Because if you're... If, you don't, if you're not actually recognizing sin in your life, you don't need the cleansing blood of Christ. <laughs> right? And so that's, a, that's an ongoing aspect of examining your sin. And sometimes you might even say, in preparation to communion, show me my sin. That's a, that's a crazy concept. Show me where I'm sinful. The Bible does want us to feel deeply our sin. It doesn't want us to linger there for too long. It wants us to find the the cleansing grace of Christ, but it does want you to feel your sin. 
And this is one where you can even ask the Holy Spirit to, to begin showing you uh, the depths of your sin uh, in a merciful way. Um, I would say that this too is a tension. Uh, you could become so consumed with thinking about your sin that you think, unless I've actually searched out every last sin of my life, that I can't come and take communion. And that's not true either. None of us actually reaches the depth of all of our sin at any one point. It, it, remember, we're acting out realities. We're, we're basically saying, I'm a sinner, I need grace, I need God's forgiveness. And so if you're honestly trying to look at your sin, then communion is for you. But if you are flippant about your sin, if you have no intention of trying to overcome your sin, you're not looking to Christ to help you with your sin, and you take communion, you're trampling on what Christ has done. He died to take away your sin. Is that clear, those two? The third way is in your relationship with other believers. And this is the larger context. This is what it really is, uh, the whole passage is talking about. This is why Paul is upset at them. Because they're taking communion in a private, individual way. They're, they're discerning the body uh, for themselves privately maybe, but they're not really discerning the larger body of Christ, which is the whole church. And in that sense, we usually say things like, if you, if you have sinned against someone in the body, but have never actually went to them and confessed that sin and said, I'm sorry for doing this, such that another person in the body has... Um, uh, been injured by you and you don't care. Uh, so if I'm going to go have fellowship with the head of the body, but I'm not going to care about the rest of the body. That, he says, is trampling the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, so in the context, some people are eating and they don't care about other people getting any of the, the, uh, the bread or the wine. So, in a, and we're going to broaden that into just thinking, I don't care really about the rest of you. I want to know Jesus and I could care, the, care less about the rest of you guys. If, that, if you take communion that way, Jesus is mad at you. He's mad at you because he didn't just die for you. He died for the whole body. So if you're treating the body disdainfully, you're treating those whom Jesus shed his blood for disdainfully. And it makes him mad. He wants you to care about the whole body. Now I'm going to ask Howard, do you want to add comment or do you want to ask further questions? Because you asked particularly about recognizing the body. I think all, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not either or, it's both recognizing the, the, the physical body and blood of Christ and it's recognizing the spiritual body, which is the church. And again, this is why I think that young kids have trouble with this. Do you th really think even a six-year-old who's believing in Christ understands the whole body of Christ when they're partaking communion? It's possible, but not likely. And so you want to take time. Usually when I would take a, a young person through 
um, community membership, it might take it might take ten lessons, you know, and and four of them will be on communion stuff. Okay, um, so it it you got to slow down, you know, when you're when you're talking about these things. I I don't do as much with adults, but with kids, it's really important to slow down and think through what is going on here. Um, okay, now, before we're, we'll get to pay to communion in a minute, let's, let's get into this sickness and dying portion, um, 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, and here again, I think he uses judgment in two different ways, right? If we, judge, if we really examined ourselves and, and condemned the sin that's there and confessed it to God, we would not be condemned. See that? That's the, that he's using judgment, but he's using it kind of... He says, but when we are judged by the Lord... So it's like, wait a minute, I just thought I wasn't getting judged, but I am getting judged. And I think what he's doing here is like, be, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. So here God is, if you're partaking of communion in an unworthy way, God sees that. He evaluates that you're trampling his body and blood uh, under, him, under your feet. And he says, I'm going to do something about it. Right? condemnation yes yes yeah and you can understand why people get all confused about judgment right (laughs) are we supposed to judge are we not supposed to i mean we all have to make judgments i mean you cannot take communion correctly if you're not making judgments evaluations about things and and jesus is evaluating you as you're taking communion he's actually looking at you actually scares me sometimes especially to administer communion but to partake of it, it's like, you know, he's looking at me. It's not a mindless, unimportant thing that's going on. Very seldom does God say that he evaluates what you are doing. But he does so in this act. He's actually evaluating you. And he says that if you do it wrongly in an unworthy way, you are going to be disciplined. Now, um, it, it's very clear at the, uh, at the end in 32, all this discipline is done so that you would not be condemned with the world. So that you wouldn't go to hell eternally. Okay? Uh He gives some instructions but uh, in what you should do in the context. Go home and eat your food there, get your fill, and then come for communion. That, that's his point. But, but what he says is, um, if you don't do this, he says, that is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now when I preach this, because I was looking at my notes this morning, one of the ways that I started the sermon is, is God for your health? And, and ultimately, yes, he is for your health, because in the new heavens, new earth, you're going to have perfect bodies, and you're going to be perfectly healthy and holy and all that kind of stuff. 
But in the short run, God is less concerned about your physical health than he is the health of your soul. Right? And it's obvious in the text. If he's willing to actually do something to damage your physical health in order for you to learn a spiritual lesson, he must care more about the spiritual lesson than your health. Okay? And this is one reason why, you know, when you get into health and wealth kind of gospel, it, the focus is wrong. There's a place, I think, in John where he says, as it is well with your soul, I want it to be well with your body. Like, you know, that, like the soul is the most important thing, okay? And that's the point of this whole communion, is that it's pointing you to a spiritual reality that the body and blood of Christ are b- taking away the curse so that you will experience eternal salvation, so that's the, that's the point of it. So when he says, if you are sick, that makes sense to me. Now, what Paul does not say is that you immediately know when you get sick if it's caused by this. He doesn't say that, right? He, says if, he doesn't say something like, if you get sick, then you absolutely know that you've not kept communion correctly. But the reality is, you can get sick, and I know that the providence of God, not just because you sat beside somebody who had a virus, but because God wants you to be sick to get your attention. That's the point. And so when you get sick, you should at least, especially if it's an ongoing sickness, kind of a chronic sickness, you should at least ask the question, am I partaking of communion in a wrong way? Am I flipping about my faith in Christ? Am I really examining my heart to see if I have faith, to see if I'm repenting of sin? Am I really taking this seriously? Because if I'm not, God could be trying to get my attention. Yes, so... So we can turn to the end of James. I actually have that, James 5, 14 to 16. James 5 actually helps us understand that not all sickness is because you've not kept communion correctly. Okay? So James 5, 14 to 16, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is a whole other passage. It it, takes some time to work through, and I'm going to do it rather quickly here. But sometimes when you're dealing with an extended sickness, you're you're questioning it must be me and maybe you're actually sincerely sincerely repenting of your sin but because you're not completely freed of your sin you're still struggling with maybe God's just angry at me maybe he's beating me up you know those kind of questions that you have because because you know that sickness could be the result of God trying to get your attention so what are you supposed to do well you're supposed to go to the most mature spiritual men in your church. 
And you're supposed to go and talk with them. Now, why would you go and talk with them? Well, they're supposed to be able to do the best that they can to discern what's going on in your life. And I can tell you as elders, we don't know everything that's happening in in someone's soul. But we are supposed to say, are you? Is, Is there some unrepentant sin in your life? That you're just saying, I don't want God to deal with. I'm just going to go my own way, do my own thing. Um, usually, if someone's willing to go to the elders, they're probably dealing with their sin. <laughs> but it's, you, know, you still have to ask the question. And, and assuming that the person is telling you the truth, and they say, yeah, I'm dealing with this sin, but I'm, you know, I'm really trying to fight against it, and da-da-da-da. The elder's job is to anoint you with oil, right? What is the anointing of oil? What's that a picture of, symbolic picture of? The Holy Spirit, healing, joy, peace. So so symbolically, what the elders are called to do is to say, as far as we can tell, this sickness is not... The result of you like hardening your heart against sin. Or maybe you confess your sin to the elders and they declare to you forgiveness. Right? The gospel says you confess your sins, there's forgiveness. And so then the elders are supposed to pray over you with the confidence that when they pray over you that that sickness will not lead to your condemnation. In other words, you'll get well. You'll be saved. Now, a lot of people think, Will I get saved immediately? Will I get well immediately? No. No, not necessarily. Because our ultimate healing is not until the resurrection. But the elders can say that you are not being disciplined by God in this sickness. And that you have God's peace over you. And the elders are, they have, we've been given authority to try to, to try to, give that as shepherds of God's people and to say, you're under God's blessing. We don't know why you're sick. We don't know why you're dealing with this particular illness. And it may be chronic. But it's not because God is angry with you. you see how much peace that can bring? You could, deal with, you could deal with all that by yourself. And you could come to the right conclusions. But you could also wrestle and struggle for years in, in what I would call unhealthy guilt. Because you never just went to the elders and asked them, would you pray for me? Here, I just want to talk through with you why I'm struggling with this. I I feel God's anger over me. What do you guys think? That's the beauty of this. Because I think it's not always easy. Particularly when you have an ongoing sickness. When it's something that's a struggle. So in other words, this is another tension could my sickness be because I'm not dealing with uh, my sin, my relationship with God, my relationship with sin, my relationship with it? Could it be that? Yes. And I should take that seriously. That's part of why I should examine my heart, judge myself. But just because you're sick doesn't necessarily mean that this is what's going on. And if you're really confused about it, talk to your elders. You following that? Because they can, they're the most spiritually minded Wise people that are there to help you with these things. In, in 25 years of being at this church, I think it's been like twice that people have come to the elders and asked for help. 
think that's somewhat pitiful, but that, there it is. Of course, I'm not sure I've been, <laughs> I've not done it, so <laughs> I am an elder, but at the same time, I could go to the elders and ask them, and I haven't done it either, so I'm not condemning anyone for that. I'm just saying that this is, this is kind of the, the world in which Paul wants us to think through these things, and James as well. Okay, one last thing that is absolutely confusing to me. Not, not, not quite to pay to communion yet. Absolutely confusing. Some have died. Now, I can get how, like, God makes you sick so that you come to repentance and get things right and you move forward. But what is this some have died? How does that help? And that's really confusing to me. I, the way that I've worked it out, and I don't know, you guys can maybe have better ideas on this, but the way that I've worked it out is that if someone who is truly a believer, they are truly united to Christ by faith, God in some sometimes will take that person and they'll get sick and then they'll repent and they'll come back to, to you know, and they'll keep going. In some people, they will die before their time, before their faith is completely destroyed. Doesn't sound very victorious, but uh, I've prayed that prayer. Lord, if I'm going to ever completely deny you, take me out before it happens. Because I don't want to deny you. If that makes any sense. And I don't know why God would do it this way, but I do think that he, that's the way I work it out in this, that he has taken some people out of the world before they actually quit believing altogether. So, questions on that before we go to the whole pay to communion thing. Hmm. Um, he just went back to it, but he had been <laughs> confessing the whole year prior to that and mm. was really reading scripture and, you know, we prayed and prayed and prayed for him and, you know, he died. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I struggled with that for a while and mm-hmm. then that's kind of the conclusion that I came to mm-hmm. was he, he was just so broken mm-hmm. that he couldn't continue. Yeah. I, I think the longer that I'm a pastor, I, I do think that some people go into glory like crawling, crippling, and other people maybe more victorious. And we're, we're thankful for the victorious ones, but we're also thankful that, uh, that God um, saves even the ones that are just crawling. <laughs> so... Um, that, that's how I take it. Does anybody have a different interpretation of that? Because it doesn't, it, it doesn't. Yes, it is, it is true that some could not be true believers and they would be, but, and that is, we in a sense have to leave that into the judgment of God. But in this particular passage, Paul tends to speak of it in terms of so that they would not be condemned with the world. So it does seem to be more positive here than negative. But yes, it is possible people take communion are not really true believers and they could be judged with the world. Correct. Yes. Yep. Now, um, boy, that looks nice. The argument for a paid communion and and. 
this has never been something that I have personally, uh, it's never been personally convincing to me, um, except on simply a theological, logical level. Practically speaking, the whole concept of the, the centrality of examining yourself for communion is so strong to me that I can't imagine it just be given to children. But the argument goes like this. Our argument for baptism goes back to circumcision. And uh, circumcision was not just given to adult believers, but it was also given to their children. The foundation for communion comes out of the, the Passover meal. Jesus was eating the Passover with his um, with his disciples when he instituted communion. In the Old Testament, uh, children did partake of the Passover. And so, like, theologically, if you're making the connections, they seem to make, well, if, if we baptize because of a connection to circumcision, then why wouldn't we uh, give communion because of its connection to the Passover meal? Um, I think they would take the examination portion of it as as the child grows up, that they would grow into that sort of examination, not something that they do at the beginning. And I'll, I'll defer to Joe on this because I know that he's thought through this, maybe even kind of leans that way, but just is that a fair assessment of how they would deal with this? Mm-hmm. Um, Baptists will look at Presbyterians and go, how do you get around that? Well, Ooh. you're not really getting around it. Mm-hmm. It's the way you do it inside of that lens. So I know what you're asking. Um, but the way I would do that is very similar to how you uh, just described it. As you, get, you grow to the table, mm-hmm. you would grow to the table. And, uh, and, so, and, and so then it would be important that as, as the pastor administered communion, that, that the... Um, that they would make it impor- like make it an ongoing thing so that the the young people and the adults would hear these warnings clearly is that yes that's that's correct i would also um, i think the context of the passage is unless you have grown up in a potato baptist potato communionist church um, it wouldn't be what and i'll just speak from experience it's not obvious initially why you would hold them to it in, unless you just see the tradition in the early church mm-hmm. has and, and the exegesis the church has done throughout the mm-hmm. uh, reformed history mm-hmm. um, why, why you would hold your children from the table because the context of keeping people from the table is those who are getting drunk mm-hmm. uh, those who are dividing from the church um, and not, wouldn't not necessarily kids yeah, the, the kids wouldn't be the ones who Paul is addressing mm-hmm. not, not saying that they, they couldn't sin. Mm-hmm. I think their sin would be a little bit more obvious if they weren't so clear. They're not so sneaky in, in the same way. I don't think they, they, they don't have that ability to perceive the way that adults uh, can. You know, we can probably pretty good sense and know that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think you're, you could probably see through your, your kids that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I think that what he's describing 
is the need to still have attention. And, and like it or not, we can't just remove the tensions that we have. One side of the tension, I would say, is that you are in. The truths of the Bible are, are true for you. <laughs> and the other side of the tension is, am I in? <laughs> and, and that is a real tension that I think we all have to continue to deal with to the day that we die. Um, I, um, I think that uh, when it comes to communion, the Lord's Supper, at its institution, was not exactly like the Passover meal. If it was, then Peter would have been with his family in the institution of this. Uh, Peter would have, uh, uh, you know, gotten his, he would have provided for his household, and they would have had the Passover meal together. Jesus clearly gives it to his disciples. Um, so there's a difference between what's going on here and what went on uh, it, it, he's bringing together the church. Now, he recognizes that even among his disciples, there could be some that are not, because Judas is a part of the Passover as well, the Lord's Supper. Um, so there's, there's even within that. A lot of this has to deal with the keys of the kingdom. Um, in the Passover meal, um, the, the parents actually decided... Who's partaking? They was in their home. They didn't. They they would do the examination, so to speak. But in in the uh, Lord's Supper, I believe that it's it's the church. It's not just families. It's the whole church that is the issue. And Jesus gives those keys to the members who are in authority of the church. At that time, he gives it to his disciples. Uh, but it would be the elders of the church that they have the keys. And so, I think in our practice, we are. We really care deeply about bringing a child into communion because we believe as leaders in the church, we're communicating to that child that we think they're truly in Christ. So we're, there's, a, there's a sense of accepting them in that way. Um, we as elders take that very seriously we don't want to lend to a child having a false confidence of them being in when they're not. And so we see that the elders are given those keys of the kingdom to receive them in. Uh, we're also the ones that would be in, in, uh, responsible for any kind of discipline that needs to be brought upon them, not just the parents. So case in point for myself there was a point where I was convinced that my children were ready to start taking communion, but I didn't, get the, I didn't have the right to make that decision myself. I still had to take them before the elders, and they made the decision if they could take communion or not. So um, I've not really worked that out in the pay-to-communion setting. Uh, I would hope that, that uh, if, if anyone, whether you're pay-to-communion or not, would certainly have this tension because if you don't, you, you as leaders could be giving uh, members of your church a false assurance. So, and that wouldn't be good. So, um, anyway.
That's, that's where I stand on that. So, Any other questions? Go ahead, Christian. There's one kind of tension that I have uh, regularly, and this is a sin of mine. <clears throat> you know, I find myself going back to the saints and say the scriptures. I struggle a lot making mm-hmm. me read scriptures and praying. Because I have so many things in my head, mm-hmm. you know, spend so much time trying to to solve problems and come up with a new, you know, way of doing things, and and then I I think like, man, I I haven't even spent time in scriptures, you know, and I spent a good month doing that, reading scripture and praying really religiously doing it, and then I go back to the old ways, mm-hmm. not praying, not reading scripture and stuff like that, and. Is that the tension that you're talking about that, you know, although I repent and I know that I need uh, the Holy Spirit to, you know, uh, give me more of the Holy Spirit to have self-control. And, um, you know, I guess it's just one of my souls and I'm just wondering if that's the type of tension that you're talking about. Yeah, there you go. And I've put it in language here. Am I the dog who returns to his vomit? Or am I the one that uh, sins 70 times 7 and keeps coming back in repentance? Right? Isn't that what you're asking? It would be nice if you sinned once and it was done. You know, but you have a besetting sin. You have something that you're continuing to deal with. You've got to ask that question. And sometimes I would argue I don't actually get it figured out. Like, like my assurance of where I am is not really the question. All you can do is believe that you trust in a God that can, can forgive, forgive even multiple sins. You can, you can call it sin. You can plead with God to, to forgive you. And you can say, oh Lord, I do not want to be this person. <laughs> and you just keep going to him. And that's what you do. You don't have to have it completely worked out. It is not the assurance of who you are that saves you it is faith in christ and so i would i would say to you if you're in that situation you're coming to communion just a little while and you're saying but lord i have done this over and over again you should you should you should cast me off i feel like the dog who's committed the you know going back to his vomit i don't deserve to be in your presence but lord i want to be saved and you keep going back to him that's why I think that that's what you do. You have to live with that tension sometimes, trusting that God saves you, you don't save yourself. And that's, it's hard when you have a besetting sin. It's hard when you keep going back to something that is really uh, shameful and you want it gone completely. Um, I don't know, you know. But you can't, you can't just say, oh, I guess I've gone one too many times and I'm the, I can't be forgiven. You can't do that. The Bible doesn't let you do that. So, Yes, excellent. Yep. One of the reasons why I have uh, Geronimo in my office, anybody see my picture of Geronimo? <laughs> Clark laughs at me. Uh, Geronimo was received into a reformed, a Dutch reformed church. 
And I don't know if you know much about the Dutch Reformed in that time. They were not, they were not like real easy. Everybody come in, you can be coming in the church. It wasn't like, that wasn't the issue. You had to prove that you had a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And, um, and he did. And yet Geronimo struggled with depression and alcoholism his whole life. And so, um, as far as I can tell, in reading on it, no one um, ever excommunicated him. And that's another big thing. Dutch Reformed people would have excommunicated him if he was clearly not. And yet, you know, I, I think I'll probably see Geronimo in heaven. I don't know that for sure, but I think I will. Now, if you think about a person who had more to be forgiven for than Geronimo, he murdered Countless people, I mean, just terrible. But he also was a man who had his whole nation taken away, his family taken away, family killed. Um, yeah, anyway, he's a man of mixed things going on here. Uh, and that's, when I pastor people, I try to, you have to hold out the fact that some people who are in the church may not be saved. And you have to deal seriously with the threat of a final judgment. At the same time, you're dealing with people who are imperfect, and they haven't mastered all their sin yet, and you're trying to love them in the midst of that. So, does that answer your question? Father, thank you for this time, and help us as we go to communion today to examine our hearts, but also to cast ourselves entirely on Christ. I couldn't be here if that were not the case. And I ask God for relief from our sin, and from all that stands opposed to us. Thank you for this class. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to change the spiritual gifts next week, so talk about all that. That's going to be fun. Make sure you turn it so the white side's out so we don't want to.